0: I think it's safe to say that I have a keen fascination when it comes to curses. Okay, that sounds bad, but it's not in the way you might think. It's just that I, like many of you, revere this topic with a morbid sense of curiosity. If you've been here since I released episode 1, then you likely well remember the story of the Bassano vase, a long-lost Italian artifact that allegedly held the power to kill its owner. Since that first episode, we've discussed the lore surrounding several curses, ranging from items as innocent as a child's toy, to locations as broad as entire towns. Of course, each of these stories was frighteningly fascinating in its own right, but truth be told, none of them were as heavy-hitting as the subject of today's episode, which, coincidentally, has been living in my mind rent-free for years, and it's all thanks to my curiosity killed-the-cat perspective on curses and hexes. Now, with that in mind, I should probably mention that this story isn't for the faint of heart. The sequence of events that I'm about to share with you is grim, to say the least. And if not for the haunting or the curse, I implore you to heed this warning, because the crime that followed is a bleak glimpse into the twisted behavior of deviant minds. Now I know better than any that this subject, while chilling, can be incredibly intriguing So if you're feeling curious enough, let's dive back into the world of Cursed Haunts. But this time, we're not talking about an artifact, or even a specific location. No, instead, this curse is a story all its own. I'm Courtney Hayes, and you're listening to Haunts. Stay tuned. They say that it's the most cursed film ever made. Although Sharon Tate couldn't have known that when she first walked on set in August of 1967. Like many of her castmates, Tate probably thought that it was just another gig. Sure, Rosemary's Baby was almost certain to be an instant classic, thanks to the wild success of the book that inspired the film. But when she arrived to work on that warm summer afternoon, well, it all must have seemed so ordinary. Looking back now, it's really sad to think of this narrative for what it really is, as a curse that has haunted Hollywood for decades. But even coming from a skeptic's perspective, while the perception is hard to deny, Rosemary's Baby was truly a tragedy in the making, even from that very first day. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, so let's rewind a bit, back before the screenplay hit the box office, before filming began before even Sharon Tate was cast as a minor role in this highly anticipated horror film. It was 1965, and era Levin was facing a completely different kind of horror. His wife was pregnant. Whether he felt prepared or not, he was going to be a dad. And what a terrifyingly exciting fact that was. Being a young writer himself, Levin channeled these anxieties into a novel, one about a young woman who had unknowingly been impregnated with the son of Satan. Obviously, it was a work of fiction, but all the same, the themes of Levin's novel were all too real, especially when viewed through the lens of a first-time parent. It's likely for this very reason that the book was so popular upon its release, selling over 4 million copies before all was said and done. It was in the wake of that success that amateur director Roman Polanski picked up the film rights for Levin's acclaimed novel. At the time, Polanski was hoping to break into the Hollywood scene, and Rosemary's Baby seemed like just the story to make that happen. So here we are once again, August 21st, 1967. It was an ordinary day by all accounts. Even for Sharon Tate, who, at the time, was stumbling into a horror story all her own. One that was eerily similar to the film she was about to make. It didn't take long for things to go totally awry. It was the fall of 1968, Rosemary's Baby had only just released a few months prior, and as predicted, the film was a raging success, and yet the cast and crew were in a world of trouble. You see, they had just received tragic news that their colleague and friend, Christoph Comida, who had written the score for the film, had fallen into a sudden coma. Apparently, a few nights prior, Comida had been at a party when he got into a bit of a scuffle. Now, as near as I could tell, this wasn't an all-out brawl, or even a minor disagreement. In fact, it was merely just a bit of roughhousing between friends. But all the same, things took a very nasty turn when Comita lost his footing and slipped down a very rocky outcropping, the likes of which are so common out in the Hollywood Hills. When the dust had settled, partygoers found that Komita had sustained serious injuries, evidently hitting his head during the fall. In the weeks that followed, Komita's wife had transferred him to a hospital in Poland, presumably so that he may be closer to family when he finally awoke. Sadly, this day never came, because in the spring of 1969, Krzysztof Komita ultimately succumbed to these injuries, although his story didn't exactly end there. Only a few months later, in June of that year, Marek Huasco met his own untimely demise. Now, I should mention that the circumstances surrounding Marek's death were mysterious, to say the least. In fact, I couldn't find much of any documentation to explain what may have happened. But even still, there is one thing that remains certain. Marek Huasco was a friend of Christoph Kamita. The very one who is with him on that fateful night. In the autumn of 1968,
1: forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi weekly podcast presenting these spine chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Havey. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com.
0: Now, it probably goes without saying that Christoph Komita and Mary Kahuasco were only the first two in a string of mysterious deaths and tragedies, each of which were seemingly connected to the film Rosemary's Baby. And if it's even possible, things only get stranger from here. For instance, right around the time of Komita's passing, one of the film's producers, William Castle, began to receive an influx of hate mail, So much so that he quite literally became sick with worry. In fact, just days after this hate mail began flooding in, Castle was rushed to the hospital due to an intense pain that he was experiencing. Come to find out, he had been suffering with a severe kidney stone. And to put it bluntly, this ailment had brought William Castle to the point of delirium. At one point, he even began to hallucinate a scene from the film, crying out from his hospital bed for Rosemary to drop the knife. Now, in the end, Castle fortunately made a full recovery. Although this hospital stay would mark the end of his Hollywood career. And honestly, who could blame him with a hallucination like that? Okay, while we're on the topic of the film's producers, I'd like to focus our lens on a colleague of William Castle. Because producer Robert Evans endured a somewhat troubled life following his work on Rosemary's Baby... In 1980, for instance, Evans was convicted of trafficking cocaine. Then, later on in life, he suffered from a series of three strokes in fast succession, the likes of which left the right side of his body completely paralyzed. Fortunately, Robert Evans made his own recovery, eventually regaining the ability to walk with the help of a cane. Although, it's worth mentioning that his recovery was long and grueling, and to be honest, he was never quite the same. Now, before we move on, I should probably mention that these tragedies expand well beyond the film's cast and crew. John Lennon, for example, was assassinated just outside of the Dakota, a renowned piece of New York architecture. But what does that have to do with the story at hand? I mean, John Lennon doesn't have a connection to Rosemary's baby, right? Well, that may be true, but for the Dakota, on the other hand, that's an entirely different story. You see, it was this very building that was used during the film's production. So, yeah, apparently even the set wasn't immune to this supposed curse. Perhaps the most infamous tragedy associated with Rosemary's Baby is the story of Sharon Tate, a budding actress who, like many, was trying to make it big in Hollywood At the time of the film's pre-production, Sharon had been dating Roman Polanski for quite some time. As such, she really gunned for a role in her lover's breakout film. And while she wasn't exactly cast as the lead, those ambitions did come to pass, for better or for worse. Now, after the film's release, Polanski and Tate became one of the hottest couples in Hollywood. That, of course, was thanks to the film's success which just so happened to coincide with the rise of Sharon's career. Soon, the couple tied the knot, saying their I do's at the Chelsea Registry office in London. And within a year, Sharon was pregnant with a child of their own. So, I would be lying if I said that this was a happy time for the newlyweds. Because, even in spite of their pregnancy, well, there were rumors that Tate and Polanski had a rather tumultuous relationship, In fact, many believed that Tate was still romantically involved with her ex Jay Sebring throughout the entirety of her marriage. Now, to be quite clear, these rumors were never substantiated, and I'm not here to make a claim one way or the other. But what I will say is that Jay Sebring was with Sharon Tate on the night of August 9, 1969, It had been nearly two years since Sharon Tate first set foot on the set of Rosemary's Baby, and so much had changed in that time. She was at the height of her career. She was married, successful, and had a baby on the way. She had great friends, like Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, and Waraheck Frykowski. To put it simply, Sharon Tate had it all. But on that night, everything would come crashing down. Now, if you've been listening closely, you probably know exactly where this story is going, but just in case, I'd like to extend another quick warning. This tale is about to take a very dark turn, so if you'd like to skip ahead, now's the time. On the evening of August 8th, 1969, Sharon Tate was hosting a small get-together at her home on Cielo Drive. She was accompanied by J.C. Bring along with his friends, Warahek Frykowski and Abigail Folger. Roman Polanski was away in London for work, leaving his eight-and-a-half-month pregnant wife back in California. At first, their night was just like any other. Together, the four companions had gone to dinner, then returned back to the Tate Polanski residence. As they sat there, enjoying each other's company, there's no way that they could have known of the impending horrors looming above their heads. It was just after midnight when four armed individuals approached the residence on Cigello Drive. Completely undetected, the assailants slipped into the house, where, to put it lightly, they wreaked havoc on our four companions. By daybreak, the Tate Polanski residence looked like a scene out of a horror film right down to the words written in blood on the walls. Later, it became clear that this had been the work of the Manson family, a notorious cult that had been orchestrating a series of vicious murders in the area. At the residence on Cielo Drive, there were a total of five victims. Among them were, of course, the four companions whom we've discussed throughout this segment, along with Stephen Parent who had been visiting a friend residing in the guest house on the property. Now, it goes without saying that these killings were horrific enough in their own right. But here's the real kicker. As I mentioned a moment ago, this incident was just one in a series of vicious acts committed by the Manson family. And as it just so happens, this group of individuals visited another residence that evening. Here, at 3301 Waverly Drive, two more fell victim to the Manson family. Leno LaBianca, along with his wife, Rosemary. While her role was a far cry from the lead in this film, I can't help but compare Rosemary to Sharon Tate herself. As we know, Sharon was well into her pregnancy, and she too met an ill fate at the hands of a group of Satanists. Now, as a quick aside here, I am well aware that the occult has both light and darkness, just as every other spiritual path may have. And hey, I'm not here to pass judgment on any practitioner or religious belief system. But you do have to admit, it's more than a bit eerie especially considering that Sharon Tate's story didn't end on that night in August of 1969. You see, while the Tate-Polanski residence has since been torn down and rebuilt anew, the home that now sits on that very property is supposedly riddled with paranormal activity. So, before we end today's episode, I think it's only fitting that we discuss the haunts on Cielo Drive. The first report of strange activity dates back to 1992, when Trent Reznor, of Nine Inch Nails, took up residence at the property. And given his knowledge of the home's history, well, it's safe to say that Reznor was more than a bit spooked upon moving in. The following documents Reznor's thoughts about his first night on Cielo Drive. Quote, I walked in the place at night, and everything was dark, and I was like, holy Jesus, that's where it happened. I jumped a mile at everything, even if it was an owl. I woke up in the middle of the night, and there was a coyote looking in the window at me. I thought, I'm not going to make it. End quote. Years later, the property was purchased by David Oman, who has his own claims to make about the residence and the spirits said to be lurking there. For instance, Oman believes that his home is plagued by a dark sort of energy, almost as if the property itself remembers the turmoil that it witnessed on that fateful night. And honestly, that makes sense. I mean, you and I both know that locations with tragic pasts have the tendency to retain that sort of energy. And suffice it to say, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case for this particular haunt. Not to mention that there is at least a bit of evidence to back up these claims Shadow figures, for instance, are commonly encountered throughout the residence, both by Omen as well as the many investigators who have explored this property. On one occasion, Omen claims to have even encountered the apparition of a pregnant woman who was drenched in blood. And according to Omen at least, this was the ghost of none other than Sharon Tate herself. I know, it's a bit too convenient for my taste. But hey, stranger things have happened especially for those involved with this notorious film. And like I said earlier, I wouldn't be surprised if there was at least a bit of residual energy still remaining in this space. This episode of Haunts was written and produced by me, Courtney Hayes. If you've been enjoying the show so far, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review. A lot of work goes into each episode, and supporting the show in this way really helps us reach more listeners each week. It's entirely free and takes about 30 seconds, and it would genuinely mean the world to me. Also, if you're interested in learning more about today's topic, I greatly encourage you to check out the show notes section on our website at hauntscast.com. This is the location where I share my sources and provide any visual aid that may be referenced during the show. Finally, I would love to connect with you online. You can find me on Instagram, at Hauntscast, or you can join our email list for updates about the show. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, happy haunting.